We are in our sixth week of this, of this series that we're in, looking at the seven churches of Revelation. And the reason, here's the deal, is the, the reason I don't feel like we need to stop just to look at Mother's Day and, and for me to build a sermon on Mother's Day is that Jesus spoke these words to the church and they are vastly important. When he spoke, he didn't just, he wasn't speaking for his health and he wasn't, it wasn't just that these churches, these words were important to the churches that he was speaking them to. And he, at the end of each letter, he says, anyone who can, anyone who has ears to hear, so anyone who can hear this and understand it, listen up, apply it. And so we know that today these words are just important to us as they were to the churches that he originally spoke them to. And while there may not be a direct a direct interpretation or a direct uh, uh, relevancy as, as direct as it was to the churches then, there are certainly principles that we can build. As Jesus said these things, he was striving to challenge his people to understand what he expected of them. He, was, he wanted them to understand what it was to live the Christian life and to live in response to what he'd done in their lives. He wasn't, he wasn't all about giving these laws or these commands or giving these expectations and then just saying, you know, it's not a big deal if you figure it out or do it. He expected these, of, uh, these things of his people. And so he not only gave the commands, but as we'll see broken out today in the letter to the Philadelphian church, is that he also gave them the power to fulfill all that he commanded. Let me just give you a few ideas of what we've gone through so far and help you see how this is all going to play out and come together as we understand what he did through the church of Philadelphia. He tells his churches that they're to love him first. In fact, he got on to the Ephesian church. It was a, it was a great church had great doctrine, stood for great things, did wonderful works, but they'd lost their first love, and he, co he condemned them for that. He says, hey, you've lost your first love. All that you're doing is, is missing the point. He expects his people to live with him as their primary motive. He expects his people to teach truth, to know truth, and to apply truth. That's, that's where he got onto the, the churches at uh, Pergamum and Thyatira for, was that their teaching had, had moved from a place of, of gospel-centeredness, of right doctrine, and had been allowed to shift to a place of, of heresy. And so then it, didn't, it wasn't just teaching, but it began to affect their lives. So we're to know the truth, we're to apply the truth, we're to teach the truth. He expects us to live faithfully. This is something you've seen through all the letters. He expects his people to live like his people. He expects us to live up to the call that we've been given. And he expects us to live holy lives. That means we're to strive to overcome sin. That's what Jesus expects of his church. And we've seen it over and over and over presented through these letters. And some of these letters, some of them have been very heavy. And it's very difficult to deal with because we recognize in ourselves we are completely incapable of being these people that God calls us to be. And in fact, I mean, the reality is Jesus knows that about us. He has these expectations of us, but he knows by ourselves we can't do it. He knows that inside of yourself there is a war going on with the, one, with the person he's made alive, with that living spiritual person he has made you, and that dead flesh that you carry around. And Romans, Romans speaks about this, this, this war that this goes on these, between these two natures, these, these two people, in essence, that live within us, that dead, sinful person that we just haven't shed off yet, and the living spiritual life that Jesus has built in us and made us to be. He knows that we're at war within ourselves. He knows that we live in a culture that's constantly going to be causing temptation or bringing temptation to our lives, and he knows that our sinful flesh is going to long to, to fall into that temptation, to live in that sin. He knows that. 
He knows that there's a part of us that sees that temptation and is, and is just is, is convulsing within us, is, is bothered by it, finds it just to be, just to be nasty and sinful and dirty. And, and he knows that that's what's going on. He knows that we live in a, in a world where there's this real spiritual war happening. And we don't often talk about this. We don't think about it very much, especially in our culture today, because we have science that explains everything, right? I mean, we have doctors to tell us what's wrong, and we have medicines to make it right. And we've got a reason for every miracle that could ever happen. And we've got, we've got science to, to explain all of this supernatural away. But Jesus knows we live in a world that, is, that, that exists inside of a supernatural war. And over and over, and we'll see it again today, that Jesus speaks of people who would claim his name, who would say they're his people, but he's going to say they belong to Satan. It's not the first time he's used this phrase or this term in a letter to his churches. He knows there's a spiritual war going on. And that war is not necessarily victorious because the, the enemy wins you, because Satan and the demons win you. They don't care about you. They don't, there's, there's no concern for you. There's no desire for your adoration. There's no desire for your worship. There's no longing for your good. They just simply don't want God glorified. You're just an afterthought. You're a byproduct. You're an innocent bystander. And anything they can do to defame Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they're going to strive to do it. But Jesus knows that, that, that we are weak and, and that we're, we, we are the um, object oftentimes of, of the attack of the spiritual, in this spiritual war. And so he knows that there's these issues and he knows that left to ourselves, we're never going to strive to be all that he commands us to be. And so he gives us not only the, the expectation, but he gives us the power. See, Jesus expects his fame to be the intended outcome of all we do. Jesus expects his people to live worshipful lives. And then he provides the power for us to achieve such a high calling. You see, this isn't, this today, the letter that Jesus, we're going to deal with, isn't as much, it's not going to be as heavy and in our face as, as these last letters have been. It's really going to be a, a letter I hope that you find encouragement in and an ability to stand and do the things God's called you to. Because the reality is you're not on your own. He is with you and he is giving you power to do the things he's called you to. And it's going to be the, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read through seven, chapter 3, 7 through 13. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. And let me just catch you up and let you know on what's, what's going on in Philadelphia. It's probably the youngest city of all the letters that, that were written. It's probably the youngest city that's represented there. It was only established in 189 B.C. So really, it's an infant in this time compared to what the other cities were. It doesn't have a whole lot of history. doesn't have a whole lot of standing. You know, it's just a small, fresh, young City. It's probably best known for its wine production. They, they lived on volcanic ground, and, and the, uh, I guess it was extremely fertile, especially for uh, vineyards and things of that sort. And so they were, they were known, they were famous for their wine production. They also were, were big about leather production and textile industry, but really the wine was, was what it was about. And because of that, their, their central god or their primary god was Bacchus or Dionysus, which is the god of the, the grape... Uh, Harvest, which, I mean, I, I think that's crazy that they, they got so serious about their gods and naming gods for everything that there was even a god for a grape harvest. You know, I mean, really, that's, 
That's what we need is we need a God to make our grapes harvest well. And so they named this guy Dionysus or this God, Dionysus or Bacchus. It's the God of the grape harvest and wine. And, and so obviously, that, I don't know if you've ever been to Mardi Gras, but that's a big thing as Bacchus parades down there. It's like a huge celebration of just drunken hedonism because that's, he's, he's the God of wine. So, you know, that's what you do. You get drunk to worship him, I guess. And, and, and so anyway, that's, that was the big thing there. And along with that, there was the Roman cult of emperor worship, and there was a huge influence or a significant influence of Jews there. And in the midst of all this that was going on and all these perspectives and all these situations and circumstances, the gospel is planted, it takes root, and the church is birthed. And Jesus then speaks to that church, and he says this, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David and who opens... And no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about, my, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is, uh, that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Man, what hope, what, what, what a sense of urgency that builds. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in these letters, every week we come to this place where Jesus opens the letter. He says, write this, tell this to the messenger to, to, to go to the church, and and, and I want you to tell them who's writing. And he, he comes and he introduces himself, a, a way that he proclaims himself to the church as they're about to hear some important words from him. And he starts with that I'm the holy one, the true one. I have the key of David. And I open doors who no one can shut and shut doors who no one can open. And in that passage, I mean, I think we see that Jesus is the true God who wields sovereign power that no one can overcome. It says that he's the holy one, the true one. This is a direct, direct claim of Jesus' divinity. If you ever wondered, if you're ever tested, if anybody ever says, I don't think Jesus was God, or I never even thought that he thought he was God, point them to this passage. I am the holy one, the true one. This is a direct claim of his divinity. He's saying, I'm God. There's only one other place that this phrase is tied together. I'm the Holy One, the True One. And that happens also to be in Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, it's tied together and it points to God sitting on a throne and ruling. I'm the Holy One, the True, the true One. But then all the way through Scripture, over and over and over, God, the Father, the Holy God is known as the Holy One of Israel. He's known as the truth. Jesus says, I am the way the life and I am the way, the truth, sorry. I am the way, I'm messing you guys up, I'm saying it wrong. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
He's the truth. And what he's saying simply is this. I am, I am utterly and ultimately distinct. I'm completely separate. I am the Holy One. Completely set apart. I am the true one. I'm the real deal. I, every other God you claim, every other thing that you look to for hope, every other thing that you think has power is false. I am authentic. I am real. I, I am the, the real McCoy. And they're just that. The, the, and the difference, the difference between Jesus and these other so-called gods, this Bacchus that, that was worshipped in this area because of their vineyards, this Bacchus that was worshipped because of their wine and the fame and the, and the money that they were making through it, this Bacchus, he was weak and he was impotent. But Jesus says, I have the key of David. And it's a, a, a reference to Isaiah 22 that gives us a, a messianic perspective. It demonstrates his authority, but tied together with the fact that he opens doors and closes doors and no one else has any authority or power to do anything against him. I think it demonstrates that it's sovereign power. Sovereign power to bring opportunity and to remove opportunity. Sovereign power to bring change and to, to stop change. Sovereign power to act. And no one, no one can overcome it. I think that's what Jesus wants these people to understand. I, I think he wants them to see, I, I'm the God that you can trust. I'm the God who comes with power. Now think about what he said to them. He said, I know you have little power, but who have I introduced myself to be? I'm the God of power. No one can overcome what, what I determined to do. No one can stop it. And I think it's very important. And so we begin to see him present this perspective so that the church can learn from it. And so that because it becomes very relevant for them. The church at Philadelphia was, like Smyrna, one of two churches that had nothing that Jesus had to say bad about it. Before we even get into the, the good stuff, I want to just say this. I don't think that this church was sinless. I don't think that these people were perfect. We know people. We know good, solid, loving Christian people. And if you watch long enough and you look close enough, there's issues in their life. If Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, and the Ephesian church had a lot of good stuff going on, especially at the time Paul wrote to it. But he says to forgive one another as, as you've been forgiven. You know why he had to say that? You know why he had to make that, that statement? Because anytime you put people together, there's struggles and there's problems. It's difficult to live a life of community and to live in and among one another, to depend on one another the way Jesus calls us to. It's difficult to live this Christian life. Uh, why else would Paul say, take time to make sure that you're forgiving one another as you've been forgiven? That's, that's a big deal. But it all comes from the fact that no matter how good you can get here in this world, in this life, we're still going to face struggles. We're still going to face problems. And so we can't look at this church who only had good things said about them and say, oh, well, they're perfect. We'll never attain to that. We, we can't be that. That's some special thing that Jesus did. I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a group of people who had their priorities right, who were struggling against sin as opposed to just living in it who were working together to see Jesus' mission completed. In fact, he says to them, I know your works. That's a familiar phrase. We've, we've heard it repeatedly through these letters. I know your works. I know what you're about doing. I know the circumstances you live in. I know what you give your money to, how you, how you expend your energy. I know the, the, the issues of life that you deal with. 
He knows the motives that compel, his, that compel these people, the, the priorities that they hold in life. He knows them. He knows them from the inside out. And th- this, is, this, is inter- this is amazing to me. It's the, probably the most beautiful point of this whole message, at least to me, is that this God who has sovereign power to open and close doors, this, this holy one, this true one, he stops. He takes time to write letters to his people that they can hear from him. I mean, imagine that. As big as he is and as, as amazing as he is, he's mindful of us. And that speaks to me. That, that moves me. It makes me want to respond to him. It makes me want to live in honor of him. And with the Philadelphian church, it's probably the smallest of all the churches. It had probably the least influence. It existed in a city that wasn't all that large. Wasn't the smallest of the cities that, that Jesus wrote to, but it didn't have just a lot of influence itself. But inside the city, this is a church that was really unnoticed. Nobody was talking about it. I mean, if, if they'd had Twitter in this day, nobody would have been tweeting about it. No, what, no, nobody would have gone to their meetings on Sunday and made sure that there was tweets going out about the great things the pastor was saying. There, there, it just was a small church. It was probably a church much like ours. I'm not trying to compare us to a church that had only praise. I just, I think it was a church probably a lot like ours. If they had PowerPoints, they probably had technical difficulties like we do because we don't have a great production. It's not like we got it all together. I think if, if I'm not mistaken, the screen's still purple behind me, right? They're a small church with, with little influence, with little ability to just to really do everything upright, to make a big, big statement, a big show. They're a small church. They have little power. People look at them and think, oh, they can't do anything. It's a small church. They don't have much to offer. They don't look very successful. Their carpet's torn in their building. They don't don't look like they got it together. Their pastor preaches with his shirt untucked. Come on. That guy doesn't love Jesus. Yeah, I, I think in many ways that that's how people perceive them. But Jesus knew something that the world didn't. He knew their works. He knew what was going on inside of that church. He knew those people. And he cared enough. He he cared enough, this big, great, big God who has power to do anything and to speak to anyone. He chooses this little church. He says, I know your works. And not only do I know your works, but I have provided a door for you that no one can close. You see, Jesus had provided this opportunity. He had brought for them this opportunity to do something, to act and to respond to his gospel because of the original language, because of the way it comes to us in the Greek, and I'm not going to break it all out, but the reality is that because of the way it comes to us in the Greek, we can understand that this is a missional opportunity. The reality is, is that the way the Greek is stated is that we recognize that the traffic of this door was about coming inward and not going outward. He's not speaking to them about an opportunity for them to go through a door of opportunity that makes their lives better. He's speaking them to, to them about a door in which people can come into his kingdom. It's about his kingdom advancing and his kingdom expanding. He says to this little church who is really powerless, who, who has little power, who is looked over, who is um, ne- not neglected, but it's, it's just, you know, they, they just nobody thinks anything of them. He looks at this church and he says, I 
have provided you an opportunity. I've provided you a door. And then he says, I'm also going to provide your results. Most of the time in our church culture, we think that the results are the things that measure our success. Jesus tells this church, I've provided you an opportunity. Behold, he says, I've opened a door and no one can shut it. And guess what? Behold, all of those who have come against you and said, oh, you're weak, you're powerless, you don't belong to God. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make them bow before you and demonstrate that I love you. You see, this church who's overlooked, who's forgotten, who's seen as unsuccessful, who's persecuted and oppressed because they don't have what, they, what was going on in Sardis. They don't have all the programs. They don't have all the, the, the mission stuff. They don't have all the great stuff going on. This church had an opportunity brought to them by Jesus that was going to bring the results he wanted. You see, that's the results we should long for. That's the results we should want. You know, we don't have any idea that this church was having great numbers of people coming to Christ. We don't have any idea that there was hundreds of people being baptized on a weekend service. We don't have any clue that that was going on. In fact, the, the, the way that it seems is that this church has been small and stayed small. But they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. They were striving for the mission. They were, they were living in such a way that he saw their works. And rather than come to them and say, I think your works are incomplete, he praises them. He says, I know your works. I know the opportunity I've given you, and I know the results that are going to come from that. I know that you live missionally. I think that's what Jesus was wanting to, to praise them for, that they lived missionally. They took advantage of the opportunity that he had provided them. They lived in accordance with his word. He says, he says I've provided you a door of this opportunity, you, you've gone out, you've done this thing, yet you have not, you, you have kept my word, you've done this positive thing, you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. They lived in and on his mission. They lived in obedience to him. And rather than becoming identified by, by their own success or by, by being identified by their, their own works or being identified by something that they were doing, they lived in and under his identity. They lived carrying his name. See, we don't, we don't, again, have any indication that there was huge numbers of people being saved. But we have the, we have the perspective that Jesus comes and rather than com condemning, he commends them that they were doing what he called them to do. In missional living, it's as much about making, it's, 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 it's making much of Jesus everywhere you are. This is the whole perspective that I've been trying to build for you through this whole series. The, the, the idea is, is that everything we do it's whether we go to work, whether we are in the grocery store, whether we're sitting at a restaurant after church, whether we're hanging out in our neighborhood. Everything we do should be done to God's glory. Everything. And, and as we strive to live in that, we are taking part in His mission. Do you know what Jesus' mission is? What did Jesus come to do? To seek and save the lost, right? Is that the end of it? Is that all he came to do? Uh, his mission isn't done. He not only came to redeem, but he went away and he's going to prepare a place for us that he's going to come back and get us. And when he comes and gets us, you know what's going to happen? 
He's going to make all things new. You see, his mission is about redemption and restoration. And so as we strive to live in this, and he is sanctifying us and removing sin from us and, and maturing us spiritually, we are being restored. We have been redeemed. We are being restored. And the truth is this, that as we then turn and begin to take part in that, we are taking part in his mission. And so if you get up and you go to work and your only concern for going to work is, man, I've got to get a paycheck so I can eat, you need to change your motive. That's not missional living. That's selfish living. I need to get a paycheck so I can eat. Oh, it seems noble. I should be able to work and get paid. Absolutely, you should. But your primary purpose is to live on Jesus' mission. If you're striving to be a good parent, just so you don't have kids that go to Sunday school and cuss because you don't want to look bad in front of all your friends, that's missing the point. You see, as we parent, it should be about making much of Jesus to our children, teaching our children not just to obey, but to love Jesus so that they obey. That's missional living. It's making Jesus the center of all of our decisions. It's, a, it's about looking at whether or not we live in this, this house or that house, or, or whether we rent a house or buy a house, or whether we take this job or that job, or, take, or, or buy this car or not. It's all of those decisions and the circumstances of life and looking at them and understanding how can I honor Jesus in this? How can I make much of Him? How can I bring Him glory? That's missional living. And it affects every part of who we are. And that's what Jesus has called his people to. That's what this whole series is all about. It's about us recognizing that, that if this is the life, if we want Jesus to look at our life and commend us, that this is the people he's calling us to be, a people who live missionally. And recognize that mission isn't just set aside for that week that we go away in the summer. But at the moment I wake up, when I'm alone, when nobody's watching, who am I serving? Who am I loving? When I'm at work, who am I serving? Am I striving to get ahead just so that I can be patted on the back and praised? Or do I want, do I want to see Jesus glorified? As we parent, as we live as brothers and sisters in Christ and serve one another, Whose fame are we living for? That's, that's, that's the call. And, and, and that's what he, he praises these people for. I've brought you together. I've given you this opportunity. And they were, they were taking advantage of it. And we see that he tells them that they, they had remained faithful. In spite of their small size, in spite of their lack of influence, they perceived in themselves, the, the lack of influence that they perceived in themselves, they didn't give up. They were committed to living just as Jesus had called them to. And we talk a lot about faith in Christian culture today. We talk about, oh, you know, we're saved by faith, not, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, that's, that's a great, great verse. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. That's awesome. But oftentimes we forget that following 2, 8, and 9 comes verse 10 that says that we were created in His, by Him. We, we are His workmanship. And that he's got works for us to do. That he's got a job for us to do. And that job doesn't always come easy. The expectations that he places on his people don't always come easy. But faithfulness is most clearly demonstrated in the trials of life and not our perceived success. You, it's easy to say you're faithful when everything's going right. Isn't it? 
I mean, if, if you've got it all together and, and everything you do just seems to turn to gold, that doesn't take a lot of faith to keep doing it, does it? It's pretty easy. But, but to, what, what is it to remain faithful when everything you try to do seems to fall apart? Doesn't result in what you thought it was going to result in. Doesn't, doesn't provide the, the, the fruit that you thought it was going to provide. I mean, what if you spend all of your life striving to, to well, uh, let's just use our church as an example. Man, when we planted this church, I had, I had delusions of grandeur. I'll just say it like that. I, I just knew we were going to be the, you know, I, I didn't have a desire to see a mega church planted. But I just knew God was going to blow us up. I just knew it. And so as that didn't happen, man, I struggled in my heart. I struggled hard. Every time I went to raise money to try and provide something that, well, my own living, tried to find ways to get things done, fundraising, I, I was told no at every turn. Our church has always been self-funded. Well, until we bought this building. I guess I shouldn't say always. I mean, we started, we started a church with virtually no people and no place to meet. And today we're still a church. And for the visitors that are sitting here, you're not seeing the breadth of our church. We're still a small church. But even today, we're missing people. And, and, and it's an amazing thing, really. Because here we stand. We're, we're not a church because I had a great idea. Although I think I had a great idea. We're not a church because you decided to grace us with your presence. Although I'm glad you graced us with your presence. We're not a church because we finally got a building and a stable location in which we can meet. We're a church because Jesus Christ has given us an opportunity. And because we've chosen to remain faithful. Because I really believe that one of the strengths of this church is that we strive to live this life. That, that your leadership desires this for you. That as we sit around the leader's table, that we don't, we don't look at our own desires. In fact, we're constantly praying for one another that we push off our own desires and we think about what's best for the people. That what, what glorifies Jesus most. You see, I think we're still a church because Jesus has decided to open a door and provide us power that we might continue as a church. Man, what a beautiful blessing we have. But remember the call. Remain faithful. And in fact, he said to this church who had remained faithful, he says to this church, don't give up. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The reality is, is, is we can't quit. Oh man, Seth patted us on the back this morning. Oh, I could take a break. No, we can't. Hold fast. The reality is what we need to see happen is we need to see this church and the perspective and the vision and the mission that we've been given handed off to the next generation. You see, as we strive to put this together, we're not living for the short game. We're not living for what happens in this moment. We're looking for the results that Jesus does. That's the long game. What, how, what difference will it make when our kids grow up and church is not just a, a thing that you tag on to your life on the weekend, but it's a part, it's the people who are a part of your life. What happens when our children grow up in an environment where the church is central 
to who they are. And, and the service that they receive inside the church meets their needs. And they're able to serve by God's power to meet other people's needs. How different will it be when church is no longer just an event, but the people of God come together to worship and glorify God, not just on a Sunday morning, but during the week. Because it's who they are. Because it's the people they long to be with. What difference will it make when our children recognize that every person in the church has a part to play and a vital, important part to play? How different will it be for them when they grow up with that perspective versus the idea that you come to church on Sunday and you give that time to God and the rest of it belongs to you? How different will it be for them? How much less will they have to overcome as their perspectives are shaped now? You see, that's the long game we're playing. Because we want them to grow up not looking to be obedient and gain God's approval, but to be obedient because they've been given God's approval. I want that for you. But how different will it be for a child who's taught that from the moment they begin learning the Bible to one who has to figure it out when they're a teenager or at college when the culture around them is telling them, you can't do it, it's not worth it. He may not even be real. How different will it be? You see, this is the idea. We're not looking for our fame. We're looking for His. We have to remain faithful. And the truth is, is that faithful living is most clearly demonstrated in the trials of life and not our perceived success. And you can even compare this with Sardis in Philadelphia. Sardis was a church that, who, who had a reputation of being alive. They, everybody looked at them and thought, man, look at all the great programs they have. Look at all the things they have to offer. There's ball pits for my kids to play in. That's probably not fair. Just because a church has a ball pit doesn't mean they're not a gospel-centered church. So, maybe they're not, I don't know. Do with it what you will. But look at all they got to offer. Look at all these programs that seem to be doing so much. Look at all these things that just seem to, every time they touch something, it seems so great. Look at how they're so friendly with the culture. But if you were here last week, do you remember what Jesus said to that church? You're dead. And this Philadelphian church, this church, this, this little church with little power, he praises them because they're not given to praising themselves for their success and not given to striving to make a name for themselves. They are living for him. Man, what a beautiful perspective. That's what we've been called to. And in addition, just before he gives his promise, just before Jesus comes and says, here's the promise I have for you. He, he praises them one final time for enduring patiently. And we've been through this. This is, the, this is the key. I mean, this was what was missing in Sardis. They were not enduring patiently. It, it, this word, it's macrothumio. It, it, it's a word that teaches us about the circumstances of life that they were living in. It was not easy. It was difficult. I've, we've talked about this repeatedly. The endurance part sucks. It's difficult. That's life. That's where we live. And, and to, to proceed in, in this walk, to follow after Christ, it's about endurance and commitment and perseverance. And just because the door seems to shut, or just, I shouldn't use that term because we're using it with Christ, but, but the reality is just because it seems like things are against you doesn't mean it's not the way Jesus would have you go. In fact, if everything's falling into place, 
and you're not facing any kind of oppression or needing to persevere in any way, you might ask yourself, why? Because the churches Jesus praises and commends for their works are doing it in the face of opposition. They're living in circumstances that are difficult. They may lose a job. They may lose friends. They may find difficulty because of their perspectives and because of their faith. They, th these people had to make sacrifices. They had to endure hardship. And Jesus praises them for that. Well, what can we apply to our life here at the way? What are the principles that I'd like us to glean from this? Because the reality is this. I think there's numerous ways in which our church mirrors this church. But if I were to be completely honest about our church and I was to be honest about the letter I think that we would receive, I don't think we would receive a letter that was only commendation. I love you guys. I love my role here. And much of the reasons we wouldn't receive a letter of only commendation and only the good that was going on is because of my leadership in many cases. So trust me, I'm not, I'm not just laying this on you. I, I, I hold this near and dear. But what can we glean from it? To accomplish Jesus' mission, we have to depend on Jesus' power. Have to. It, this isn't an option. But I think all too often it's the place where we as a church fail. And again, not just you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about us. You see, I, I think all too often we strive to live by our own means and our own power. You know what we're going to accomplish by doing that? Our own results. If we want to see God-sized things happen, then we need to do God-sized things in faithfulness. Then we need to do God-sized things in endurance. We need to do God-sized things depending on His power. Now, I think that means we're going to have to get over our fears and trust that Jesus has us. You know, the beauty of this letter, the beauty of this letter is that he says, you have but little power. I have given you opportunity. I've given you a door that no one can close. I've done this for you. And there's going to come a day when the results become obvious and those that stood against you, those that oppressed you, those that made, made, made you out to be nothing, those that, that hurt you, those that stood against you, those I will bring. And I will cause them, I will make them, I will force them, he says, to bow before you. That, not, not because Jesus wants his people worshipped, but because he wants to demonstrate the power that lives in his people. Because he wants these people, those that stood against his, to know that they are the object of his great love. That they have received and live in his great power. And we need, we need to recognize this God who opens doors that no one can, can close and closes doors that no one can open. We need to live in this power. Church family, we have been given an opportunity. It's our responsibility now to respond in kind. We've got to get over our fear. I think it plagues this church. I think it plagues us. I think we're great about getting out and doing something and, and, and reaching out, but we're afraid to, to say the words. We're afraid to proclaim the message. 
we're afraid to, to, to point somebody to Jesus. We have to get over that fear. Trust that Jesus has us. We have to get over our feelings of inadequacy and trust in Jesus' sufficiency. The reality is you are inadequate. I am inadequate. I, I have no business being here preaching this message. Just, man, if you knew me, you would know that. And it, some of you know me better than others, and you do know that. But Jesus is sufficient. And what he has for us is sufficient. I mean, wait till we get to the promise. The promise is amazing. We, we've got to get past this idea that it all falls on me, that I've got to do it all. You see, when we're going we're gonna to accomplish Jesus' mission, we have to depend on Jesus' power. Well, we can't depend on our own. Every church should recognize at some level we have little power. Oh, but Jesus, he's all power. He is sufficient. We have to get past our sense of failure. Before we ever even try. This is something that kills me. I, I, it happens. I, I, I've struggled with it. I've, I've sat and had conversations with people who have struggled with it. But before we even begin trying something, oftentimes we are, we're, well, it's just not going to happen. They're not, I'm not going to risk my relationship telling this person about Jesus because they don't want to know. What if that's how people had treated you, you know? I mean, what if, what if nobody ever told you about Jesus? What if never, nobody ever took the time to demonstrate his, his grace in tangible ways to you? Man, I, I want to I reach this group of people. But I don't, I don't think I can do it. You know, I, I feel like Jesus is calling us to do this, but, I, you know, I, I don't have it in me. It's not going to work. I'm going to fail. It's not going to happen. Who are you depending on to get this job done? If we're going to see Jesus' mission accomplished, we have to depend on Jesus' power. And I think we have to let go of our greater desire for results. And more than anything, more than anything, desire Jesus' fame. That's more than your own fame. That's more than your own, um, your own standing. It's, it's more than your relationships. It's more than the money you make and put in your pocket. It's more than anything else in your life. Desire his fame. When that becomes the central reason that you do everything else, I think you'll see his power at work in you. I think we'll see his power at work in our church. And I'm not, don't, don't hear me saying that his power isn't at work in our church. We're seeing great things happen. We're seeing guys come and confess porn addiction and, and repenting and living under accountability. We're seeing people deal with, with personal, real sins. And we're seeing him glorified as, the, as grace and mercy is demonstrated and his victory is given. We're seeing it happen. We're seeing people served at, at, at very base levels where, where needs are being met. And Jesus is glorified because his church is coming together and supporting and serving its people. We're seeing great things happen. I don't want you to think that we're not. But I think all too often we're trying to do these things in, his, in, in our power, in our understanding. And I think if we're going to see his mission of redeeming and restoration completed, well, I think we're going to have to depend more on his power and live more for his fame. And it all leads to this. You see, this is the reason. The, the promise that he gives, that's the reason 
The, the thing that we all look forward to, that moment where Jesus' mission is made complete. When he comes and he says, look, for those that overcome, for those that conquer, for the, those that, that persevere, for those that endure, I'm going to make you a pillar. In this culture, in this context, they had already experienced numerous earthquakes. In fact, there was one in 17 AD that nearly leveled the city, nearly destroyed it. And so this idea of a pillar is something that stands strong. I am going to make you stable. I am going to make you strong. But he doesn't stop at what he's going to make them. He goes on to talk about what he's going to call them. I'm going to write on you a new name. The name of my God. You see, it's not just stability. It's citizenship. You belong. You're no longer distant and, and, and an alien. You are family. You are a citizen. You belong to this new creation. This is going to be your home. He said, no matter, no matter what happens here, no matter how successful or unsuccessful we feel, the truth is this, that as we endure, as we persevere, our hope is not what happens here, but what he's going to do when it's all done. And he looks at us and he writes on us a new name. And he calls us his own. He says, you are mine. You belong to me. So that's what we live for. That's why we endure. That's why we persevere. Because we want him to be famous. But because we know that as he's made famous, as, as he's made much of, as he is worshipped and glorified, and as in, in our own lives as that happens... That's where we find our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction. Everything else leaves us empty, leaves us wanting. Let's pray. Well, Father, you're good and you're gracious. We love you. We thank you for your work and we thank you for the promises that we have in you. God, I thank you so much for loving us, loving us in spite of ourselves and who we are. God, I thank you so much that As we look at who we are as individuals, as a church, the, the struggles that we face and the temptations we deal with, the sin that, that burdens us, that's not a measure anymore. That how good we perform and, and how well we get things together and, and how, how, how much the world thinks of us doesn't matter anymore. I thank you that in your son we, we stand accepted in you. And that we have a message that brings great power. The power of, of salvation, the power of life. God, would you encourage us to walk in that every day? Would you strengthen us for it? Would you remind us that it doesn't depend on us? That you're the one that opens doors and you're the one that closes doors. God, would you enable us just to walk in this? to proclaim it in front of a world that doesn't always want to hear it, to tell it to people who are close to us, even though it may cause some tension or some awkwardness, because it's the best thing for them. God, would you, just, would you strengthen us for what you've called us to? Would you enable us to just make much of you in all of our life? Would you help us to learn how to rest in your power? to trust in your power, to trust in you. 
It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.